Hello, and welcome to what was supposed to be our New Year's Eve episode on Miranda July's The First Bad Man. Now, there were some unforeseen difficulties in editing and publishing this episode, so it is a bit late. Let's see it as a lesson. Sometimes things don't go according to plan. And that's no catastrophe. Good to remember for the new year. But now, slightly belatedly, for the episode. That said, the spaces between my features are in perfect proportion to each other. So far, no one has noticed this. Also my ears. Darling little shells. I wear my hair tucked behind them and try to enter crowded rooms ear first, walking sideways. So sorry to tell you, Jonas, but your ears are kind of hideous. You're just jealous of the perfect spaces between my features. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and for the last time in 2015, welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. And I'm Christian. Hi. And since this is the last episode of 2015, we read a book that was published this very year. The First Bad Man by Miranda July. The book tells the story of Cheryl Glickman, a woman in her 40s who suffers from a condition called globulus hystericus. Basically, whenever she is anxious, nervous, in some way agitated, her throat swells up painfully. She cannot swallow anymore, and it is causing her some real trouble. Cheryl is a peculiar woman, to say the least. For example, she believes in the transcendence of souls. There's a man in her life, Philip, who she knows sort of from work, but she believes that actually they were together for many, many lifetimes before, in the Stone Ages, in the Middle Ages, in the 40s. He's quite a lot older than her as well, 20 years as a matter of fact. She also believes that the soul of a little baby boy who she knew as a child, called Kubelko Bondi, keeps being reborn into children around her, and she forms very deep emotional connections with these Kubelko Bondi children. Her life, which is a dull, anxious, but at least safe one, is thrown into chaos when Klee, the 20-year-old daughter of her bosses, moves in with her and turns everything on its head. So, Christian... Usually, this would be the point where we talk a bit more about the author and about the publication history of the book. Actually, this ties in very well with my first question, which is, what the fuck? I actually hadn't read this book before. I was too busy reading 300-year-old books to read any books that were published in 2015. So when you said, oh yeah, we could read The First Bad Man by Miranda July, I didn't really think anything of it. At first, then I realized, oh, she's that woman who did that awful movie, The Future, which I already hated. Uh, so I was not particularly well disposed towards the novel. What is the fuss about? Why do people think that this is somehow great? Why did you suggest this for our podcast? Well, the book was quite well received. And I think a lot of it has to do with the persona or the name of Miranda July. Does she have some really powerful friends who threaten some literary critics or...? Well, she has published a book before, two books actually. One of them, the short story collection, No One Belongs Here More Than You. And some of our listeners might know that book. They've seen it on the bookshelves of some of their friends, the more artistic, the more hipstery friends, perhaps. Hipster is a very important word that we will come back to over the course of this episode. Definitely. I mean, July is one of the poster children, maybe, for a kind of hipstery literature. She's often classified as somehow quirky and indie. And just if you look at a picture of her, 
She's like if Zoe Deschanel was even more manic pixie-like, if you can imagine that. She's like a cross between Zoe Deschanel and the singer of that band who did Radar Detector. I have no idea what you're talking about. You are a radar detector. I have no idea. It's, it's like this really hipstery song. It's like really, the, the guy has like really ugly curls and stuff. I would rather describe her as a cross between Zoe Deschanel and Kristen Schaal. No, also, no, no, because Kristen Schaal is a lovely woman who does lovely work and Zoe Deschanel is okay. But you would also describe Kristen Schaal with the adjective quirky, wouldn't you? Yes, but in a non-shit way. Unlike Miranda July. That is really interesting. I think that is something worth talking about. That words like hipster and quirky have become basically insults to throw at certain books. And on the one hand, I think that in itself is kind of unfair because quirkiness in itself is not something that is bad. It can be used in a bad way, obviously. Such as in The First Bad Man. We'll come to that. And on the other hand, I think the novel itself, I don't know whether it is actually that hipstery or quirky or whimsical. It begins with Cheryl Glickman going to see a chroma therapist who prescribes a solution of red, a homeopathic solution of red to treat her globulus hystericus. There's nothing more fucking hipster than that stupidity. But that's a scene that could be from a Don DeLillo novel or Paul Auster novel as well. That is nothing in itself that makes this more hipstery than other books. And it's the whole attitude that all these characters are so incredibly up their own ass about their quirkiness, about their unconventionality. Even her therapist. Her therapist doesn't have a bathroom in her doctor's office, so she pees into Chinese takeaway containers. And it's... There's no purpose to it. There's no point to it. It's just there to be kind of weird in an interesting hipster way. I don't actually agree. I think the characters themselves are sometimes certainly portrayed as somehow quirky or unconventional. And every character is. There's no one who has a grip on life. No one in this whole book. Cattle meet pot. Yeah, I know, but I'm not proud of not having my life together. Also, I'm in my mid-twenties. I'm allowed not to have... Everything figured out. Wait, wait, wait. You're allowed? So older people are not allowed to not know where their lives are going? Well, they shouldn't be so fucking pleased with it, should they? I mean, the the definitive point in this was when Cheryl says, oh, you know, we all know those times where we lie in bed and we don't feel like getting up. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, you know, cups start to accumulate around your bed. Yeah, sure. So instead of going to the bathroom, you just pee in the cup. What the... No, you're a 43-year-old woman. You should be able to make the two steps over to your fucking bathroom every now and again. But Cheryl isn't pleased with herself. She is incredibly unhappy. I mean, the whole perspective that she has on things is certainly unconventional. But at the same time, it's quite clear that most of these views are basically her attempts to make sense of the lonely and miserable life she's living. There is nothing about her that says, yeah, this is someone who's really happy about what she's having. She is hopelessly in love with Philip. Who is the most... Philip is one of the most despicable characters we've encountered in this podcast already, and I'm including Humbert Humbert and Patrick Bateman in that. True. At at a certain point, I thought that he could be also called Philip Roth, and I thought that maybe that is an interesting point, because Philip is an older gentleman who uh, is having sex with uh, underage girls. 
And actually, the first plot point in the novel really is that he seeks Cheryl's blessing for having sex with a 16-year-old. By writing out text messages, what they are doing right now, all the pre-steps, like touching each other oh, and, and having let's petting. Let's not get into that. I had to read them once and it was disturbing enough. But that is quite clear. Philip is supposed to be despicable. And Cheryl is supposed to be both miserable but also horribly pathetic. Yes. Oh, yes. Pathetic is, is the right word for her. You know, I thought that maybe this book would feature some development in her character, that maybe she would become less fucking annoying or stupid. And, you know, she does. She does at the very end. After she's been put in charge of an actual human baby, which is a great plot development to happen in any novel, of course. Oh, just give this neurotic woman a child and surely she will grow on that challenge. That's never been done before. And then... She starts moving beyond that. For example, she gives up on Philip and she realizes that even though now she could have him, even though he wants to move in with her and live with her, no, she doesn't want that anymore. That happens literally in the last five pages of the book and it is incredibly rushed and lazily done. And also it doesn't feel convincing at all because the book then ends with her fantasizing about her future with Jack, the little boy, which is just as ridiculous. So, no, th there's no change to her character. The only way you could enjoy reading this book is if you enjoy being in her company. And in order to achieve the same effect, you could as well stick your head in an anthill. It's, it's incredibly grating and unpleasant to be around this horrible person. True, especially in the beginning. But again, I would disagree that there is no change. The whole book is basically the journey of her change. And it's not a, a linear change. It's not a progression of growing and developing into a better person. Because, honestly, that is bullshit. And I'm very grateful to Miranda July for not giving us this plot. I mean, you could argue that the whole you just need a baby to kind of grow into a responsible person thing. That is kind of cliche. But even the story of how she becomes the mother of Jack is... Wholly unconventional. I mean, she and Clee become lovers. But how they become lovers is an incredibly disturbing uh, love story, you might say. Because what happens is basically Clee is her house guest and she rebels against her all of the time and basically tries to push her to her limits because she realizes that Cheryl is a pathetic person and she beats her up. And Cheryl finally, finally learns to stand up for herself in a physical, primal way. That's the part of the book where it suddenly turns into Fight Club for 20 pages, which is an interesting inversion. Feminist Fight Club. Yeah, it's instead of, instead of a man-child being sort of dissatisfied with his life because, oh my God, do you realize like it's all about consumerism and it's like nothing matters anymore? It's a hysterical woman who is not well-adjusted to life and... Both of them solve their problems by physically beating other people up and being beaten up and somehow getting a kick out of that. Great. I really needed to read that again. By the way, it's kind of sexist that you say hysterical. But that, but that is how she is described. Okay, now, before you throw the accusation of sexism at me, let me throw the accusation of sexism at Miranda July. Cheryl is one of the most sexist characters I have ever encountered. She is, yes, hysterical. Well, you know what her condition is? Globulus Hystericus. It's right there in the fucking first pages of the novel. But the, the whole condition is in itself just bullshit. Yes, of course it's bullshit. That's because Cheryl Glickman is the embodiment of a gendered view on psychology. 
And yes, she is a horribly sexist character. I'm glad you agree with me. Now, no, I don't. No, no I don't. <laughs> I don't. No, so she, she is, is. She's obsessing about men, either Philip yes. or Kubo yes. Bondi. She is completely unfit to deal with even the smallest things in life. You know what this reminded me of? I recently had the displeasure of watching the movie He's Just Not Into You, which was horrible. It was two of the most tiresome, dreadful hours in my life. And Cheryl Glickman could be right out of that fucking movie. She would no, fit no, in there no, like the hand no. into a glove. No, 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 she can't because she is a 40-year-old who's not that attractive, who has gray hair. And the thing is that in he's not that into you or any other kind of romantic comedy. The horrible thing is that these things are meant seriously, that this is supposed to be a vision of how the genders work or how relationships work. Here, it's quite clear that everything she imagines to be, everything she obsesses over is just part of her sad, sad life. And the moment of breaking the shell and growing into another person, not a perfect person because such a thing doesn't exist, is this very unconventional relationship with Klee, which isn't even a, it's, you couldn't even call this a coming out story because there's nothing about being a lesbian and finding identity there. No, it's just that Klee happens to be the one person that manages to break her out of her shell, even if it is in a horrible and violent way, even if there is no happy ending. But Cheryl grows from that. If there was any sense of Klee breaking through her shell and if, if that was ever shown to have a real effect, then it would be beautiful and it would be touching. But no, it's just another weird, quirky thing done to make this character even more weirder and irritating. You kind of made the point that, point that we're not meant to agree with Cheryl's beliefs, etc. So doesn't this mean that this book is ridiculing her? That we're just standing around and laughing at her, pointing our fingers at her and say, oh, look at how stupid this old woman is. Either this is a depiction of an incredibly grating woman that this incredibly grating author identifies with and wants us to identify with, or it's a, haha, look at how stupid the new age lesbian is. That's a very binary view of trying to come to terms with this character. I think both, basically. Because, yeah, she is supposed to be grating. She is supposed to elicit a not very positive response in the reader. At least I think so. For many pages, I had the urge of just throwing the book into the corner. Because well, at least there we agree. <laughs> there we agree. But, yeah, at the same time, you can't help but feel sorry for Gerald. But you cannot just feel sorry for her because it is... Such a horrible way of being pathetic and you feel aggressive. And again, th this is more honest, I think, than trying to, I don't know, present some tearjerker story of a poor woman who is a victim of her circumstances because no one is just a victim of their circumstances. No one is a saint. No one is just a grating, horrible person. There's Everyone is also a bit stupid. Yes, true. We are. The characters in the book are. We are caricatures sometimes. We are stereotypical and horrible and probably go on the nerves of our fellow people more often than we believe. By the way, remember to go to iTunes, subscribe and rate us five stars and please leave a review. Yeah, that would be very nice of you. Let's come to the relationship between Cheryl and Klee. So as we mentioned, it starts very unconventionally with Klee just being a, well, a horrible, moody 20-year-old who hangs around her house and misbehaves, and then they start beating each other up. What's that about? Well, you mentioned how aggressive you get when you read about Cheryl. Just imagine you live with her. 
you have to deal with her quirks all of the time. Wouldn't you like to beat her up? This podcast in no way condones violence against women. Except for Cheryl Bickman. And Klee is also the kind of extreme portrayal that she's almost a, a troglodyte, you might say. All about the primal urges, not wanting to do anything. Only thing she really wants to do is test Cheryl's limits. And there you also have a very, very unlikable character at first. But on the other hand, you also meet Klee's parents, the bosses of Cheryl. And they seem to be all very hippie-ish and tolerant, oh so happy, and cannot help but hate them as well, in a different way. And as it turns out, they are really not that tolerant and not that happy in their lives. And so, just as Cheryl, Klee is a kind of a counterpoint, a person that doesn't fit the usual image of how a life should be, how a relationship should be. And that makes it very grating at times, but also means that she is a person and she has some more depths to her. You already said that it's not really a coming out story. It's not really a lesbian identity narrative. So is this just a frivolity? Is this just something that July throws in there to say, ah, oh, now they're in bed together having sex. Isn't that fun? I don't think so. I mean, now I do something that I usually chide you for, namely taking the author into account. But July herself uh, has had relationships with both men and women, has been very vocal about that. And saying that doesn't mean that she is queer or bisexual or lesbian or whatever. And I think that is, to a certain degree also, if not the message of the book, at least the message of that relationship, that it really doesn't matter. It, it, to a certain degree, I think it's very romantic and very kind of classic story that, where the message is love is important and you find love in unexpected places. But it is about love. It's not about sex or sexuality. It's about love. It's about the love between these two women It's about the love that Cheryl has for Kubelko and then later on for Jack, which is anything but conventional, but still exists and is still valid. Yeah, man, like we don't need labels, you know, I don't want to let that define me. God, you're really not doing anything to dispel this hipster view I have of Miranda July. But the, the only thing I knew her from before, really, was this film that she wrote and starred in called The Future, which is atrocious as well, by the way. Because I sort of knew her as this artist who's really, really over-involved in the things that she writes, at first maybe that made it hard for me as well to differentiate between her and her central character. So we'll have to give her credit for that, that there she really shows me the limits of my usual the author matters approach. Mm, yeah, we have to still differentiate between the authors and the characters. Thank you for reminding me of that. Still don't like your book. It's interesting that you mentioned this kind of yeah man attitude. While I still don't think that it's very hipstery, I would say there is a certain aspect of the novel that I find quite interesting. This connection to new age philosophy. Cheryl is working at a very strange place. It's a kind of a self-help institute, but it started out as a self-defense institution for women, but in a more spiritual sense, it really doesn't make that much sense. And we mentioned that Cheryl goes to a chromotherapist and later on to a psychoanalyst for trying to come to terms with her 
globus and her strange anxieties. And a lot of that is treated in a very strange way. On the one hand, it seems to be a kind of a yeah, satire, this kind of, oh, these cookie Californians, what they believe in. On the other hand, July seems to not believe in it, but at least see a certain value to these new age things, that there is something about these messages of self-development, self-fulfilling lives and so on that is valuable. But I'm not sure whether she does her story any service by associating this often crass and unconventional coming to terms with your own life story, maybe, with these hippie new age slogans. Definitely not in my books. It might be because I have a burning hatred for all things new age, But that was something else that turned me against the novel right from when I read the word chromotherapist on the first page. And it really isn't overdone enough for it to be satirical. It's really not strong enough for it to be a, oh, look at those crazy Californians. Because I'm all up for that. Believe me, there's some crazy shit people do and I enjoy laughing at it. But I've read that so many times before. I've seen that so many times before that if she had done that... I would have had the same hate for the book that you have right now. I might be very anti-hipster right now, and I might be saying, oh, I fucking hate the hipsters. Yeah, because that's an opinion no one's ever had before. It's a lot of self-hatred in that, I think. The one thing that really drives it home to me, how middle class and how hipster I really am, is watching Orange is the New Black, where I identify so much with the middle class characters who are meant to be a horrible over-the-top caricatures. I'm probably more of a middle class pretentious hipster than I like to let on and maybe that's why July is kind of hitting a nerve. Wait, no, no, it's just that I fucking hate hipsters. Back in my shell. <laughs> Back in my shell. Back in my shell. So, I'm in a safe place. So is, I'm in a safe place. So as Jonas Glickman tries to say... um. <laughs> So all in all, I did not terribly enjoy reading this. Though I have to confess, there's one thing with which July kind of almost won me over. And that is her style. I have to agree, she's a great writer in terms of style. For example, after Clee and Cheryl have just started beating each other up, Clee tells Cheryl that she's not a lesbian. And the exchange goes as follows. I appreciate the gift, but I'm not... You know, I'm into dick. Oh, we're in the same boat, as far as that goes, I said. I saw us in a little dinghy together, liking dick on the big, dark sea. I read that on a bus, and I literally almost fell out of my seat laughing. And it's sentences like this where I think, I'm really not enjoying this book, I really don't want to be in the presence of these characters anymore, but damn it, that was a funny sentence. It's interesting, because the style is the one point where sometimes I might go in your direction of saying... Well, fucking hipsters. Sometimes I have the feeling that it's too much, that these aphorisms could be better served if published on a blog or on a Twitter account or something like that. And there I sometimes had the feeling, well, this is a bit too quirky, precious, or whimsical. But on the other hand, it does also a great job of portraying Cheryl's very strange perspective in a different way than just telling us, oh, she is weird and miserable. And some of these, you could actually identify with her a bit more beyond the strangeness, where you thought, well, she kind of has a point. I just wouldn't put it like that. 
Let us come to our verdict. Not just should you read this, but also is this really significant for the year 2015? Is this a book that you have to read if you want to know 2015 as a year? I would definitely say no and no. I would recommend that you read this book if you host a literature podcast and your co-host has saddled you with the sad duty of reading it for your end-of-year episode. If you're not in that situation, don't. It's really not worth it. Well, I would say yes and maybe. You should read this book if you're not a narrow-minded hypocrite like some people, if you don't have a problem with unconventional characters, unconventional plots and situations. Whether this is a good portrayal of the year 2015, I don't know. Time will tell. This year has felt like a very special year in many respects, in culture, in society, in politics. And I don't know whether this rather slim volume, despite its unconventionality, really does the whole year justice. Well, we'll see. At least it's a fascinating book. And even if you hate certain aspects, it is not like any other book that I've read in quite a while. So let us come to recommendations. And since this is our 2015 year-end episode, what is it from 2015 that you cannot miss? Well, literature-wise, I've been kind of behind. Um, First Bad Man is one of the few books from this year that I actually read. And while I recommend it, I wouldn't say it is essential or necessary to read it yet. What I would rather say is combination of certain things from a different area of pop culture, namely TV, and to be more precise, animation. Because I think people have talked about the golden age of animation, but what we have right now is really the maybe platinum age of animation. There's so many good shows out there. On the one hand, shows that are for kids, but still manage to be clever and wise and mature. Shows like Adventure Time or Gravity Falls or Steven Universe that are really, really worth watching, even if you're not a child anymore. And on the other hand, there are shows for adults that deal with very complex and also very current topics in such a way that no other show could really do. Shows like Rick and Morty and especially Bojack Horseman have made this year very, very special for me. And I would recommend everyone basically to check out these shows that I mentioned. Also shows like Bob's Burgers, for example, so I think animation is really in its prime right now and gives me a lot more than many other media have given me in the year 2015. Whereas you recommend a whole genre that's going through a golden age at the moment, I want to recommend a specific work in a genre that's kind of not at its best at the moment, a Broadway musical, namely Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda. A musical about Alexander Hamilton, first uh, Treasury Secretary under George Washington, founding father of the United States. The music is partly traditional Broadway, but very influenced by hip-hop, rap, R&B, the things that Lin-Manuel Miranda has worked in before. It is a great story, not just of the American Revolution, but it is a story of a great character, who's also not the greatest character. I mean, he cheated on his wife 48 times in their own house. But it is a fascinating character, a character that I actually enjoy spending time with. The music is addictive. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. I've listened to it maybe 50 times in the past three months. Hamilton is my recommendation for the year 2015. This is it. This is our first year in podcasting. Well, I think it's time 
to thank you listeners for sticking with us or discovering us or trying us out or whatever and i would also like to say thanks to you jonas because you were the driving force behind actually doing this in the first place and It's been a hell of a year and it's been really fun. So save some of this for February when we're going to have the big anniversary episode where I'm probably going to cry. Okay, then fuck you, Jonas. Fuck you as well. With the greatest and deepest affection. Fuck you. Ugh. As usual, check us out on Facebook, on iTunes, our homepage, our email address. You know the drill. You know this already. But something we don't know yet Jonas, what's the next thing, the first book of 2016 that we're going to be talking about? Well, after going from 2015 to 2016, we're going to go back. Because next week we're going to read George Orwell's 1984. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. She also believes that the soul of a little boy... <clears throat> a little boil, a, a, a little wart that she had on her foot when she was a child. Called Baldrick. <laughs>